2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, if you could open your Bibles as we turn there. It says this, but we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. So our scripture today is a solid contrast to last week's message. If you remember last week, Paul was responding to the Thessalonians feeling like they had missed out on the return of the Lord. Uh, Last week you heard that the Lord will not return until the man of lawlessness appears and everyone who follows him, the man of lawlessness, will perish because they did not accept the love and the truth and be saved. So here we have Paul changing gears a little bit. He, he's, he wants to encourage the church because they, they fear that they have missed out on this whole second coming. So our verses today contrast that. They contrast between those who love unrighteousness and follow the, the man of lawlessness, reject the truth, ultimately condemning themselves to destruction, and those whom God chooses. That's the contrast for salvation through belief in the gospel to obtain the glory of Christ. So let's start And reread verse 13. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. Because from the beginning, God has chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. So Paul, first and foremost, is thankful to God for the Thessalonians and and how they have accepted the gospel message because what God has done in their lives, moving them to actually believe in that truth. Paul reminds them that the Lord loves them, and not only does he love them, but he chose them from the beginning of time for salvation. So our first point, if you're following along and you had the handout when you walked in, is this. God chooses, the Spirit regenerates, and through the gospel of Jesus, we respond. God chooses, the Spirit regenerates, and through the gospel, we respond. God has the authority over whom has salvation. That is evident by his choice. It would be foolish to think otherwise. Um, If we believe that God is sovereign over all of creation, in control of everything that happens, knows the hairs on on our heads, though his accounting's getting easier because I'm losing more and more hair every single day, and he doesn't even let a bird fall out of the sky without his will. If that's all true, if that's all without or with his permission, then he also controls salvation as well, and who has it, even if this makes us uncomfortable. The ordering here is very specific. He chooses The spirit regenerates and we respond to the gospel message, which is the truth. There are three items in God's hands here. His choice, the spirit's work, 
and the work of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel message, which is the truth. These three things are out of your control. We have no bearing on these things. We cannot change God's mind. We cannot change God's plan. But with that said, we do have a part in our salvation. We have to respond to the message. Now, that's a, that's a big question there. Theologians have been divided over this for years. You may know the two, two views if you've never heard of these. No big deal. Um, they're the names of two people. There's a Calvinist view and an Arminian view. Okay, without going into too much detail, because it's not the point of this sermon, but the Calvinist viewpoint on salvation would make much of God's role in salvation, whereas the Arminian viewpoint on salvation would make much of man's own response and control whether he is saved or actually lose his salvation, they would, they would say. In other words, Calvinists would hold to the sovereignty of God to save apart from anything that man could do whereas Arminians would place a greater emphasis on man's own control in their salvation. Now, personally, I place my flag closer to the Calvinist framework myself because of texts like today, but here's what I know for sure. Paul was giving them an encouragement here by contrasting what he just said in the prior verses about the man of lawlessness, the end times destruction, and them thinking that they've missed out on eternity in some way. He basically wants his readers to know that the same God who sends a delusion to people to follow the man of lawlessness is the same God who will defeat the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. It's the same God who chose them for salvation. God is powerful He is sovereign over all. That's Paul's encouragement to them. And it remains our encouragement today as well. So apart from whatever theological viewpoint you hold, you want to remember this. There are four people, four people involved in salvation. God the Father chooses before the beginning of time. The Spirit regenerates. Jesus provided a way of redemption through his life death, and resurrection, which is the gospel message and our response to that. Those are the four things. No matter what theological framework you want to ascribe to, the most important thing to do is to hold those four things in tension because they're all there. The order, though, that Paul does lay out is is pretty, pretty specific. First, the choice, like we've said, God the Father at the beginning, and this shows God is sovereign over all, being outside of time, being all-knowing. Second, the Spirit generate, regenerates. Now, to be clear, the text says sanctifies, but the way that it's being used is more in a regenerative way. So the last time I preached, I preached on sexual immorality and uh, the, God's will being sanctification for your life. The way that that's used is a pursuit of holiness, but that's not the way that it that it's being used here. It's, it's this idea of regeneration. So our hearts must be regenerated to accept the gospel, which we're gonna get into. And third, Jesus needed to come so that we had a gospel message. So Jesus is in there. And then fourth, we must respond. This ordering, like I said, we can, we can get a little bit clearer understanding by, by looking at who we are 
status quo as sinners. Romans 3, 10 through 11 says this, there's no one righteous, not even one. So that means status quo, nobody's righteous, not one of us here. No one under, there is no one who understands and there is no one who seeks God. That's our status quo. No one righteous, no one understands, and in our dead state, nobody seeks God. Ephesians 2.1 even says, and you were dead in your trespasses. So if this is true, which we believe it is because it's the word of God, no one is righteous, no one understands, nobody seeks God, and we are actually spiritually dead, then something has to intervene to regenerate our hearts, to be even able to accept the good news of the gospel. Does that make sense? Something that's dead cannot make itself alive. Something, something happens. God does something to our hearts, takes the veil away from our eyes. Without the regenerative work of the Spirit, we who are dead are made alive. And we can't do this. I say without, without the regenerative, we stay dead. With the regenerative work of the Spirit, we are made alive. So God intervenes. He provides the gift of salvation. And to say otherwise would be works-based salvation, which is counterintuitive, again, to Ephesians 2.8. Through nine, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. So that no, the so that is so great. So that no one may boast. It's not man. It's not you. It's not anything that you can do. Now, here's the tension, though. This is not to negate the fact that man must respond. We are the fourth person in this equation. We're not robots. So you go too far one way, then we've lost any type of free will and we're just like these, these lemmings of God. So we can, you see the tension there. We still have to respond to the gospel. Now, both theological frameworks will argue their point of view on how that actually happens, but that's called a rabbit hole and I'm not going down that rabbit hole this morning and that's not the intention of this sermon. But seriously, if you... I would encourage you to look at those two viewpoints because it will make you think. Wrestle, wrestle with the tensions. Wrestle with both, both sides of, of the argument and try to see where you land based on Scripture. It, it will be fruitful, so I, I would encourage that if you have never done that. But nonetheless, Paul was thankful that God chooses. The Spirit regenerates and that the Thessalonians believed in the gospel that they brought to them the Great Commission. Beautiful there. Um, we come to verse 14. He called you through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 13 and 14 are packed with so much goodness and so much truth in them. We gain encouragement about our salvation, how it's held in the hands of an ultimate and powerful God. And here we see the result of our salvation, that we may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our next point. Salvation results in obtaining the glory of Jesus Christ. Salvation results in obtaining the glory of Jesus Christ. We have to ask ourselves, what in the world 
is obtaining the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ even mean? We don't, we don't really use that word today. So what, what, the, what glory does Jesus even possess, possess that we can even obtain? Because we cannot feel the weight of this encouragement without trying to understand what that glory actually is. So our first, our first clue is how Paul addresses Jesus here. He says uh, both, both words, Lord and Christ. Lord being his kingship over everything on heaven and earth and even over our own lives. And the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the world, the one who, who would redeem mankind. Both of those are being used here to identify Jesus. Jesus' glory is the fact that he is both the Lord and he is the Christ who has come into the world and that he is the only son of the Father. Remember John, uh, our study through the Gospel of John, John 1.14. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus' glory is that of his own being, his own identity, the son of God. He's different. And the one and only son of God. God himself testifies to Jesus' identity multiple times in the Bible. Two of the most prominent times would be Jesus' baptism and uh, the transfiguration, where God spoke out about Jesus being his beloved son. So Jesus' glory starts with who he is and his identity of being fully God and fully man. So that's, a, that, that, that's where his glory starts. His glory is also witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration, which we said, by the disciples seeing Jesus with who? Moses, which is representative of the law, and also Elijah, the, the representative of the prophets. This is significant because Jesus is the fulfillment of both of these. First, he lived a perfect and sinless life fulfilling the law and, and was uh, able to be the perfect sacrifice for redemption. And second, he was the fulfillment of the Messiah that was prophesied about through all the prophets of the Bible. And he would be the one who could actually save his people. And by means of his sacrifice, through his death, he would atone for the sin of the world. And through his resurrection, he would overcome death and ascend to the Father, where he would sit at the right hand of glory. The glory of Christ is God's sovereign plan of redemption being completed through Jesus. And he remains in glory at, by reigning at the right hand of the Father, have been given all authority over heaven and earth. Christ's glory is that through God's sovereign will, he made a, a way, a path for sinners like you and me have salvation, not by our own way, but through Christ's way and Christ alone. You obtain the glory of Christ by being clothed in his righteousness, which covers all of your unrighteousness. 
You obtain his glory through justification through the atoning work of the cross. This means that the sin debt that stands against you as a sinner has been paid in full by Jesus Christ and his life. You obtain the glory of, of his identity. And now you are, you are not the son of God, but you are adopted as a child of God because he was the sinless lamb. You obtain the glory by having access and reconciliation back to God the Father, the one whom Adam used to perfectly dwell with and have union with prior to the fall. You get to spend eternity the way that God intended prior to sin entering the world. You get that glory, a glory you yourself could never achieve and never earn. You even obtain a place in his glory when he comes again, as it says in Colossians 3.8. When he comes again, he will bring you with him in his glory. And even now, as believers, we stand in his glory, glorifying Christ to the world as we await his return. You understand the magnitude of the word obtaining the glory of Christ. The glory is not yours. Remember that. The glory is not yours, but it's freely given to you. Does it, does it invoke uh, an emotional response of thankfulness and gratitude in your heart when you think about your salvation? I mean, you think about, I get to obtain this glory that Christ freely has given me. So when I was preparing for this, I'm thinking, who am I to receive such grace? Not righteous. I had no understanding. I'm a sinner. I'd never, I, I don't, I never sought God out. Yet, he freely offered salvation. That is so stinking awesome. I love it. And this is the encouragement Paul wants his readers to understand. And in this understanding, in the understanding of salvation, of what they have through the gospel, Paul gives them an action point in verse 15. He says this, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. Let's fill out the next point. The only way to stand firm is to understand what you're standing firm in. The only way to stand firm is to understand what you're standing firm in. We as believers must stand firm in what we know and what we believe. The apostles are dead. They are no longer giving us verbal instructions and traditions. Therefore, we must hold fast to what we do have. And what's that? The word of God. And we count that as sufficient. We, we're around 2,000 years removed from whatever traditions are being taught or talked about here. 
Entire religions have been built on, on pillars of traditions that have been passed down from apostolic ages. But we must test. Just like when Marty, Marty talked about uh, prophecy and how we should test it against the word of God. Same with traditions. We must test traditions against the word of God for validity. We're 2,000 years away. Just because something is, is said to be a tradition, why don't we take that tradition, put it against the scriptures, and make a determination if it's valid or not? Like I said, entire, entire religions have been created off of this. Catholicism is the front runner. Catholics hold to, to traditions that have been created and passed down, and they hold those traditions equal with traditions, they hold the Pope's word equal, and they hold the word of God equal. All of those things are equal and infallible in, in Catholicism. Might be problematic. Some examples of Catholic traditions, and I'm only, I'm only beating up Catholics because I used to be one, so settle down. <laughs> Some examples of Catholic traditions are Peter was the first Pope. It's not in Scripture. Mary was born with no original sin. Not in Scripture. What are some other ones? Mary didn't die and ascended into heaven. Not in Scripture. How about this one? This one boggles my mind so much. Mary remained a virgin before Jesus. I fully agree with that one. Remained a virgin while Jesus was in utero and remained a virgin after Jesus was born. But the scripture says he has brothers. <laughs> he has other siblings. I, I, I can't wrap my mind around that one. And I, I'm not trying to beat up Catholicism here. Like I said, once, once I got saved, I started, started taking what I grew up with, and I was like, this doesn't make any sense with what I'm reading. You have to know what you believe to stand firm in it. So my... My point in saying all this is that if you want to participate in something that's a tradition, whether it's here or in another church or another denomination, see if it's firmly rooted in the word of God. Something that's merely passed down from generation to generation is not good enough evidence being 2,000 years removed. So the word of God is our plumb line. And standing firm in the word of God means we must resist temptations to become idle and complacent in our faith and our walk with God. So we can't do that. We must not give up any ground on the foundations that Christ has laid through his apostles. When the roots of, of our footing become shallow, then we have the appearance that we're standing firmly rooted but we're actually not. We're not standing firm at all. I think an example or an illustration that we can all understand being in western Pennsylvania would be after a windstorm, and you, like a really bad windstorm. You drive around. What trees are typically blown over? Pine trees, right? Pine trees are always the ones that blow over first. Why? Because pine trees have shallow root systems. This isn't high school like biology class, or not biology, but this isn't, yeah. 
But it's true. Pine trees have smaller root systems. Like compared to, compared to an oak tree or something, those go a little bit deeper. And pine trees have the, they, they look, they can grow tall, but their root system is more shallow and they're typically the first tree that will fall over and typically on your house. It makes us mad. But we can appear like a pine tree, standing firm, standing tall, and actually have shallow roots. And it doesn't take much to push us over when our roots are shallow. And the world loves to push you over and to see you fall. The world loves to steal slivers of Christianity if you're not standing firm and deeply rooted in your faith. The world and Satan will weaken your already shallow roots. So we need to be diligent and seek God, learn the word of God so we can stand firm. Here's the fact. Satan loves the long game. He loves a slow and gentle decline of Christian values, a slow and gentle decline of morality, a gradual decline of giving up truths. He wraps, he wraps a, a sliver of deception in, in the mix of truth, and he watches it kill and destroy Christianity. That's why we need to know the word so we can identify the slivers of deception. Because the reality is, is when that, when that deception infiltrates our thoughts and changes our, our root system, we don't, we don't even realize it until we're so far removed from it that we can look back and say, wow, I have come so far from what I used to believe. That's what happens in the world. Look at how the world tries to make us bend our value system to move the agenda one step to the left. Just a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, and then all of a sudden you're over here and we used to be way back over there. He's good at that. He loves the long game. And, and most of the time when we're, when we're moving that step to the left, it's not because we are refuting Christianity. It comes from compassion in our heart. Whatever, this, whatever, the, whatever the worldview is on something, on, on an issue, we, we, we find compassion in our heart for the situation that is brought to our attention, so we give up a little bit of ground. And then that compassion isn't enough, and, it, and, and, and Satan and the world just, they prey on compassion. Then we just move a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, until we have the total decline of Christianity and moral values. That's how it works. So we need to be firmly rooted so we can fight against that temptation. Even when our compassion, that's the, that's the trick. Even when our compassion wants to move us to the left, the word of God keeps us plumb. It keeps us on track. To have the ability to stand firm, you must understand what you believe. And I'm not going to lie to you, it takes work. It takes dedication. It takes commitment. But you should be wanting to do it because you obtain the glory of Christ. So it's not really work, but it is work. But we love to do it. There should be a love for that. 
But the reality is, there's a huge percentage of people identify, identifying themselves as Christian, yet if, if asked, what is the gospel that you believe? Or how were you saved? What's the gospel message? They can't explain it. And they've been Christians for 20 years. But they can't communicate what actually saved them. Redemption's not exempt from, like, that statistic. Like, if I went around to each person and be like, what's the gospel? What's the gospel? What's the gospel? Like, if you're getting anxiety right now because you think I'm going to do it, but that's the reality. Like, what's the gospel? What's the gospel in your life? You have to be able to communicate it to stand firm in it. What saved you? Why do you identify as a Christian? So if you're asking that, if, if you do have angst, like, oh, man, I hope he doesn't actually ask us to come up and to the mic. Yeah, next person, please. Tell us what the, tell us what the gospel is. But if that's you, I have, see me, I have, uh, we have pamphlets called the Gospel Primer, Primer, I like Primer, Gospel Primer. Um, who's with me on that? Because me and Fred have a fight over that. You, who, what do you like, Primer or Primer? Primer. <laughs> yes! <laughs> so every time that Fred says Primer up here, everybody's like, that's not right, right? <laughs> Thank you. That is great. I hope you're watching, Fred Neal. <laughs> That is so good. That makes me so happy. <laughs> it's not right. It's not primer. <laughs> we have a book for you. It's a great resource. It just, just lays out the gospel because you want to understand it, and you do want to be able to communicate it as a Christian. And, and you can only, when you understand it and what saved you, you can, you can feel the weight of glory that it took to redeem you and, and be and therefore stand firm and, and encourage other people. So let's move on to verse 16 and 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us internal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. Our next point is this. God loves, therefore he gave. Paul reminds them a second time here that God loves them. That's the second time Paul, in a couple, couple verses he reminds them that, Paul, that God loves them. And this love gives them something, eternal encouragement and good hope by grace. God loves and he gave. Where have we heard this before? Famous verse, John three sixteen. But I, I love how the CSB puts it because the CSB puts... writes it in a way where the emphasis is on God and not on us. For God loved the world in this way. For God loved the world in this way. In what way? He gave. He gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The emphasis is on God's love here that he gave. His love is shown through Jesus, who is our eternal encouragement. It is eternal because Jesus himself is eternal. That's the part of his glory. It is an encouragement because of what he did for us. The eternal one came, lived the perfect life, paid for our sins, and resurrected, was resurrected with all power and authority to save sinners like you and me. That's encouragement. The eternal encouragement is the one who provided salvation and not only provided it 
but also guards it in heaven for you where nothing can destroy it. This is the truth that the Thessalonians believed in, and it's the truth that we have as believers today. This eternal encouragement supersedes any trial or suffering in our life, even though it's hard sometimes. That truth of eternal encouragement is the way that we can get through any trial or any suffering because it makes us, it gets us away from what's happening in our lives and it makes us look to eternity and what we have secured for us in the future. That's how that works. Now, not only do we have eternal encouragement, but Jesus is also the means of our good hope, which is the resurrection and eternal life. You did nothing to produce this hope. This good hope is by grace and grace alone. You did not resurrect Christ. You did nothing. On the contrary, you put him on the cross. You put him in the grave because of your sins. We all did. That, that's our role. But God's grace produces good hope. And we have good hope in what God did through Jesus and through his resurrection. Because if God, who through love chose us at the beginning, regenerated our hearts to believe the gospel that he gave through his love, through his son, then why would he stop there? Our good hope is that he will then resurrect us in the same way that he resurrected his son. That is our good hope by grace. Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians is that in light of their salvation, in light of everything that we spoke about this morning, both Jesus and God the Father would encourage their hearts and strengthen them for good works and words. So our next point is just that. Eternal encouragement should strengthen and motivate works and words. Encouragement, especially internal encouragement, precedes our strength as Christians. We first must find encouragement in what we believe before we will find any strength for good works or words as a result of our faith. If we are not encouraged by what God has done in our lives and for us, then of course our faith will produce no works. And James, the book of James speaks of that, saying faith without works is dead. That's a warning. If we call ourselves Christians, we don't know the gospel ourselves, and we have no works to show like we're just living the same old sinful life. James said, faith without works is, let that be motivation to us. Let it be a warning to us. That's scary. If obtaining the glory of Christ through salvation doesn't excite us, then there will be no excitement to share glory with anyone else. You will have no motivation to fulfill the Great Commission. If you, if you, it's only when you treasure 
what Christ has done for you, that you will share that treasure and, and lead other people to Christ. Right? Mexico team, like, it's awesome to see those people come to Christ. Like, it is so, that's encouragement. Just seeing people accept Christ in their life encourages my faith. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful to be able to co-labor with him in the Great Commission that we get to be a part of all of this. It should excite us. Our faith should just overflow. The good news is, is that it believers, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit living in us that will always remind us of that internal encouragement and the good hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That's the promise. Holy Spirit reminds us. As he lives in us, he reminds us. But don't, not that that's not sufficient, but don't stop there. Let the Spirit remind you as you seek him in his word so you grow into faith. This is exactly what Paul wants the Thessalonians to be doing. Stand firm in what traditions that he taught them and the letters that he wrote and everything else that that he brought to them. Remember that. Think about that. Revisit that. Be built up in that. Stand firm in that. You have to know what you're standing firm in. Remember the teaching and seek him. If you want to hear from God, he is clearly speaking to you through his divine word. All you have to do is dedicate a little bit of time and open the covers. He's there every single day of the year. It's beautiful. It's such a gift. It's a gift that people have died for over the years. It's the book that nobody has the ability to squash out. They've tried. So through seeking him, remember the internal encouragement that we have in Christ. When we do that, we will grow in faith. It'll help us to be sanctified, to to walk worthy, and it'll strengthen us for good works and good words in our lives. So the question is this, is do Paul's words, if this is a contrast to last week's message, do Paul's words excite you, encourage you, and motivate you as a believer here today? Does the idea that God loved you and chose you from the beginning stir any affections in your life towards what had redeemed you in the first place? Does it create motivation? You as a believer the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is incredible, absolutely incredible. So my hope is the same as Paul's to the church of Thessalonians, that you are encouraged by who God is and your salvation, and you stand firm in what actually saved you. Stand firm in the word of God and what you believe and that you are motivated by all of that to to do good, to, to have an overflow of faith to produce good works and produce good words and tell people about the message of Jesus Christ.
But I can't let it just hang there because there's, there may be some of us here that are thinking, well, I guess God didn't choose me. So let me, before we close, just answer that. God's desire is that everyone would be saved. That's God's desire. If that's your thought process today, I think that's excellent news that you're thinking that way. Because it might just mean that your heart is being regenerated right now and your eyes are being opened to the gospel message. And you're starting to feel uh, the, the separation like, wow, I am not seeking God at all. Maybe God's knocking on the door of your heart right now saying, it's your turn to respond to that gospel message. So let me encourage you. God chooses. The spirit regenerates. And we have to respond. And I hope today that you will respond to the gospel message.